You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Ray Polanco. Ray is an insurance and financial services professional and the owner of Ray Polanco Agency, LLC. While completing his BS in management at Binghamton University, Ray turned his focus to starting a career in insurance, specifically at State Farm. But after multiple attempts at various opportunities, he still hadn't gotten a job offer. It took three and a half years, but the tide finally shifted and Ray began his 24-year tenure with the company. Today, Ray owns and operates a State Farm office ranked in the top 5% of over 19,000 offices nationwide. He and his team educate and serve over 5,000 families in New York and New Jersey, many of whom reside in the same community where Ray grew up. But he and I didn't just discuss how he built a successful business. We also get into the ins and outs of insurance and how we as a people can utilize it as a means to build wealth. So please take a listen and enjoy. Ray, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You know, this has been quite the adjustment for us. We are so used to doing our show in person and being there with the guests and feeling the energy. And now everybody's just in like a spare room in their house. (laughs) And we try to get these technological things worked out. So we appreciate you being willing to come on the show, even though it's not our normal format. And we're really happy to have you. My pleasure. And I'm sure... Everybody listening in is getting used to this video thing and um, just happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. I I can tell you, I don't know how long we're going to be doing this because I'm not one of those people who's like rushed to get back to just being in in public spaces and and all that great stuff. So we're going to rock with this as long as we need to. Let's get into it. Who is Ray Polanco? Uh, Ray Polanco was born to Dominican immigrants in the United States. I was born in Spanish Harlem. Uh, The story of my family uh, is my dad was a professional baseball player. And at the age of 17, he got signed on to the St. Louis Cardinals. So that's how the pilgrimage of the Polanco started to this country. Uh, My dad was very good at baseball, but he got hurt uh, while playing. And uh, shortly after that, he went back and married my mom back in Dominican Republic, brought her to the States in search of that American dream, which, you know, a lot of us immigrants have, I wouldn't say I'm an immigrant, but they're they're immigrants um, we're looking for. And um, as a result, you know, they had me in the United States. I was able to sponsor them and they were able to stay here and build a better life. I grew up in the Upper West Side in Washington Heights. Uh, All my life, I started on 156th Street in Riverside. Uh, This is back in the 70s before the Dominican migration started into New York in the early 80s. Grew up around a lot of diversity, mainly African-American and Caribbean uh, neighbors. So definitely got indoctrinated into the the African-American and Jamaican, Trinidadian culture really early in my life. Um, And I went to high school at A. Philip Randolph Campus High School in Harlem, where I got a chance to meet kids that weren't from Washington Heights, and uh, I was able to live, you know, a life full of um, of a village of, of people that were there to to help watch me grow and help me grow. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of good uh, adults around me that were able to give me love and support. Of you know, fast forward to like till we get to today. So um, that's great. Mm-hmm. So when you think about 
your parents and your father in particularly coming to the States to be a professional athlete and having that dream stripped away from an injury and now having to dream a new dream for him and now his family. Did you witness that impact him in some way or was it more so, all right, that chapter of my life is over and now I got to provide for my family. What does a new chapter look like? Yeah, I think for my dad, um, he's a, well, I guess I'm a lot like him. He, he adapts very well to his circumstances. My dad was a cab driver for 35 years and that's what he did to, to provide for the family. Um, my dad was one of those hardworking people. Um, he was for sure not a perfect man because he wasn't in my life a lot, uh, but he was there financially. He was there to provide uh, for me and my brother uh, over the years. Um, I've, I've seen him uh, mostly in a great mood. You know, he's the life of the party. You know, always had a lot of friends around him. Uh, he never he never starved for, for social interaction. He was always the center of attention. And so for him, I think... Um, the, the working hard part was was the, was the easy part, to be honest. And uh, putting food on the table was definitely a priority for him. And, uh, you know, we all grow up in, in families and in, in, in our families, nothing is perfect, right? So uh, he, he was not there emotionally like I would think I would want him in my life as much as he is now that I'm grown up. We have a different relationship now that I'm grown. But uh, in terms of being cut from the baseball team. I wasn't there when it happened, but um, watching him get older and, and, raise, and raise us, I really didn't see where it affected um, you know, our relationship or even his life. I saw, it as a, I saw him just as a hardworking man trying to provide for his family. Yeah, and I think when you think back to the era, right, and, and culturally speaking, at the end of the day, the end goal is, no matter what circumstances you're under, I'm going to provide for, for my family. I'm going to do what I have to do to be um, the father that I need to be from a, a financial support perspective. But I think we hear this story a lot of, um, particularly from sons saying, I didn't get the emotional vulnerability from my dad. He provided, but he wasn't emotionally present. And I think that just speaks to the order of the day, especially within um minority communities, right? Because so much is going on outside the home just to be able to find that stability that that as long as that piece is taken care of and you have a roof over your head and food on the table, that emotional piece wasn't really explored. But as a child, did you recognize that that was lacking for you? Or is that something more you found in retrospect or discovered in retrospect as an adult male? I found that more uh, in my teenage years. I realized that, um, you know, it would have been great to have that emotional support, but you know, you turn something that you may not feel is positive at the time into something positive. And I think for me, it developed my grit a lot early in my life where, you know, I've been working since the age of 10. You know, I remember my first job I got myself. I was knocking on church doors to see if they needed help with maintenance. And uh, I ended up sweeping churches from the age of 10 years old, all the way up until I was 14. So I've worked all my life, all my young life. And I think it I based, I guess I based my upbringing f that my dad provided from watching him work hard. And I, and I thought that that was just the way things were. I thought that was the normal way is that you, you, um, you work, you, you work as soon as you're physically and mentally able. And, you know, um, part of my life in growing up, I spent all my summers in the Dominican Republic since I was, I mean, when I was born, I moved, I lived there from age two to age six. My parents couldn't afford uh, keeping me in the United States. So I lived there until I was 
you know, old enough to go to first grade and I was homeschooled for kindergarten. So even just watching what happened in Dominican Republic in terms of kids just working since they're super young. For me, I, and I, I know you heard me say that earlier and I was an immigrant, but I feel like I'm kind of an immigrant because I spent so much time in the Dominican Republic. But um, for me, it just seemed normal that you had to have grit and you had to survive. And so I always held, you know, jobs um, through, you know, elementary school, high school, college, and even beyond college. And, and I, I really attribute that to my success today is that if I wouldn't have had that perception of my dad, I wouldn't be the hardworking person that I am today. Um, and applying self-discipline and focus and just having the, I guess the, I guess just realizing that things can always be worse. You know, I had the, I had the reference of a foreign country as a young kid to see how kids grew up in Dominican Republic that didn't have shoes or didn't have enough food. You know, here I am in the United States with enough food, uh, you know, clothes on my back, a bed to sleep in. I got nothing but opportunities. So from a young age, I was able to appreciate those little things that we take for granted in the United States. And I was able to capitalize on them from a very young age. And, um, you know, just like I said, you know, it's the grit that I that I've developed over the years that have made me, you know, the man I am today. I, I have no no problems working hard. And um, you know what there's a saying that says uh, um, hustle beats talent when talent doesn't work. And I've always felt like if I if I'm always working hard, at some point I'm gonna outwork the person who's more talented than me and I'm gonna be more successful than they are. Yeah, there's a uh, one of my favorite Will Smith quotes. He talks about this and he says like he was never he never thought of himself as the best actor, but he was going to outwork everybody. So when everybody else was was sleeping or doing something else, he was going to be working and he hustled his way into, you know, the position that that he's in now. And, you know, since we're on this subject, I'm digressing a little bit, but I think it's an important point to to bring up in light of like everybody's watching The Last Dance with with Michael Jordan, who had innate talent, obviously, is like a beast on the court. But to see behind the scenes how hard he actually worked and what and I don't know if you watched it. Yes. At all. Right. So I'm I'm all, I'm on episode eight. It'll be over by the time this comes out. Um, but what I found interesting is when he came back from uh, playing baseball and his body had been conditioned to play baseball. So when he first came back, um, not being in the physical shape to be the, the basketball star that he was prior to playing baseball and what it took for him to get back there. Um, I was like, there was so much of a lesson in that to me. This is the greatest, you know, basketball player we've ever seen of all time. Even he had to say, okay, I'm shooting this movie, but I, I'm, I'm going to go shoot Space Jam, but I need a gym built because I got to get my body back ready to be a champion again. Um, and there, there's a lesson there in that many of us are born with innate gifts and talents. All of us have challenges and there are things that you have to go through, but it doesn't matter how much of the talent is inherently in you. If it hasn't been cultivated and you don't have that grit to really be the best of the best, there's no way you can perform at that optimal level at all times. There's no way. Absolutely. There's an innate strength you build when you break yourself down and you build yourself back up. Um, I saw that Will Smith video, by the way, mm-hmm. adolescence he, he, he speaks of in that YouTube video. Um, I, I've had moments like that where I've been broken down and had to rebuild myself. Um, professionally, I, I um, 
I uh, had the opportunity to build legacy within State Farm. I left my first franchise to go recruit um, Hispanic and African-American agents into New York City. And I left a lot of money on the table at the time. But I knew that there was was an opportunity to build career equity. And what I mean by that is learn how to be, learn how to manage the business from a different level as a territory manager. And I felt that even though I was giving up a lot of money, I was I was going to go ahead and break myself down from what I already knew of the business and rebuild myself up as a leader. And I'm I'm so glad I did that because you know I was able to recruit some of the best talent uh, of color in the company's history, and I'm able to see the success that they've had. Um, one included of of a cousin of mine, a younger cousin of mine that got into the business and is doing extraordinary things. You know, in the in retrospect. A lot of people looked at me like I was crazy to give up my own business to go work in the, on the corporate side. But I felt like that was going to round me out and make me a better leader if I decided to go back and open a franchise again. And I went ahead and did that. I came back three and a half years later after getting some leadership experience and I reopened my business. And now it's 10 years later and I have no regrets because like Michael Jordan, Coming back to owning my own business, I had to break myself down once again. But I, now I had leadership skills that allowed me to look at the business from a different angle and allowed me to build a business, uh, what, I, what I feel is a much strong, stronger and more solid business because I'm less of a boss to the employees that work for me and I'm more of a leader. I feel like I'm teaching them things that they're not going to learn in an MBA classroom. You know, they're going to learn, they're learning how to run and manage the uh my business, which in turn gives them the opportunity to own theirs one day. So I'm with you with the whole breaking down and building yourself back up. Um, it, it's been a journey for me. Um, and, and like I said, it, it all goes back to, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, that grit never leaves me. And I think um, as, that, as, long, as long as that grit is still there, which is, which is so important, everything else usually works itself out. But to your point, not everyone can do that. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing, no matter how much hustle, you, how much talent you have. Um, you know, it, it, things you're going to run into walls. And if you don't embrace those walls, you, you'll never get through them. Right. So I definitely want to break down your professional journey and how you've built the business that you have today. But take me back um, to you clearly had the entrepreneurial spirit and the hustle from the age of 10. But you ended up going to Binghamton University. Yep. For college. So what was what was your career aspiration at that point? So when I when I graduated from my senior year in at A. Philip Randolph High School in Harlem, um, my guidance counselor, I'll never forget. Um, he sat down with me. I still didn't know what school I wanted to go to. And I kind of got into Binghamton because one of my best friends in college was going to Binghamton and his cousin was already there. And it was like, OK, I respect this my best friend's level of intelligence and his research that it's a great school. If you're going there, I'm going there, right? It was kind of one of those things. But my guidance counselor kind of put it um, in perspective for me. He goes, he's a, an older Italian guy. He's like, look, son, you know, if you don't leave the nest now, you're going to remain in an area, a crime infested area where there's a lot of drugs. And, you know, you've made it this far so far. You've made it this far. You have the talent, you have the smarts. You need to get away from this environment so that you can focus on building on your mind and, and exposing yourself to not just what you see around you, but 
you know, a, a much larger audience or a much larger population of different people. And when he said that to me, you know, I was like, okay, I, I didn't, you know, I've always been, I guess when you grow up with immigrant parents and you've been working since you've been young, you're kind of contributing to the financial piece of the family. Cause Absolutely. I'm helping my mother out, helping my dad out because I'm working. Um, you know, I felt like I was leaving, I was being irresponsible by leaving them. But I also felt like if I don't do this now, I, I'm not ever going to do it. And so I took the leap. It was a hard decision for me. I took the leap and I went to Binghamton University. Probably one of the best decisions I, I've ever made. Um, had a great experience there. Met a lot of great people. Um, I have friends 30 plus years, 30 years, you know, that we still keep in touch to today. Uh, Pleasure Fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, probably one of the best things I've ever did too. Met a lot of mentors there, a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people there uh, were my mentors. And just to give you an example, like um, those were people I could relate to. I, I got into the School of Management um, after I pledged and we just happened to have older brothers that were in the School of Management. So he, so this older brother who, who mentored me, he would pass books down to me so I wouldn't have to buy books. You know, that's just one of the examples. And I remember like just going to college and meeting people that were part of different family structures, very different from mine, like Thanksgiving holiday or Christmas. You know, I would go to some of my, my fraternity brothers' homes and they say prayer over the dinner table and different customs and things like that. I, I felt like, wow, I was learning something completely different, like the American way of, of families, you know, and how they, you know, how they uh, navigated through life together. And, you know, the father being there with, you know, with, uh, with the mom and, and, uh, you know, the, what do they call it? The, the, the two and a half kids the, and the white picket fence, you know, a lot of, some of the, some of the guys, they grew up in the suburbs of Queens and Long Island. To me back then, you know, Queens was like the suburbs, you know, because I grew right. up, you know, uptown, you know, I had never been to, you know, a house, you know, that was like new to me. And so that experience helped me open my eyes to what could be and what my family structure could look like if I worked hard. And, um, you know, today I'm a father of two. My wife and I have been married 15 years. And, you know, now I'm in that family structure, but because I have that reference point, I'm, I'm able to relate a little bit and apply my learnings. But Back to Binghamton University, I learned a lot about um, interviewing, networking skills. You know, we used to have events on campus, you know, to donate money to community, to community um, for community outreach programs like at-risk kids or um, teen pregnancy. Uh, we used to have a program called Voteless People's or Hopeless People. Um, and we raised a lot of money. We would have events. So... As we have events, I was learning how to market events and how to get people to come to our events and, you know, um, socializing with different people. I mean, that was like a big thing. And um, I attribute that to what I do today because some of those skills that I picked up in, in meetings and, and, and events have helped me be the business person that I am today. So Binghamton was like a great um, collegiate experience. I really feel like it changed the the... It further, it further, what can I say? It further broke a lot of statistics that were against me. In other words, you know, I remember going to college and we're sitting there and the director's like, look to the left of you, look to the right of you. 
these two people are not going to be here, you know? And if you're a person of color, multiply that by 70, 80%, you know? And I felt like, wow, I wasn't going to be one. I was not going to be one of those people. And so I joined this fraternity because I felt like the guys that were in there, they were in there for the same reasons. They were in there, number one, for school. But the second piece was, how do you become well-rounded so that when you go out into society, you can apply those skills into real life experiences. So um, it was there that I decided I wanted to be a business major. And again, one of my mentors, fraternity brother, he's like, look, if you always, because, you know, when you come from urban areas, you always, you're always in survival mode, right? And you're like, how do I guarantee that I'm not going to go back to being poor? There's always that mentality that you're going to fall back and be poor. He was like, look, if you want a job where you know you're not going to lose, it, you're not going to lose is insurance. He goes, because people have to have insurance. If they always have to have insurance because the government requires it, guess what? You'll always have a job. So I'm like, bet, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do insurance. So I was recruited by State Farm on campus, and that's how I started my journey. But it literally took me three and a half years to get into State Farm. Um, really? Three and a half years. Uh, I could tell you stories stories about that. Um, I, uh, in my senior year, got recruited to join State Farm's candidate pool. And in that process, they put you in a pool and then you interview with the different departments at the time. Um, I was applying for the claims department, which is where we handle accidents and injuries and lawsuits and things like that. And it was a great job. I mean, you start, you know, you start hearing these things. You're in college, you need retirement benefits, group health benefits, you, you know, great salary, you know, all these good things. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And one of my first interview, this was in Buffalo, New York. I, I remember like it was yesterday. Um, I got driven there because I didn't have a driver's license because I'm from the city. Just don't need a driver's license. And I remember hearing at the in the in the interview itself. Good luck to you finding the right position for you. In other words, you didn't get this one, <laughs> but keep keep going. So I tried getting into State Farm a good six times before I got in, but I knew that's where I wanted to be. It was the number one insurance company in the world, you know, and I felt like if they're number one. I know I'm going to get quality training there. And in that process, this was the most disappointing thing. I was a business major in, at Binghamton, had no job. The only thing I had was an internship. It was 1993. I remember the recession was, was horrible. The job market was horrible. Did not get anything with State Farm. I had an internship with a real estate company in the Bronx managing apartment buildings, right? Here I am trying to get into this insurance thing. I can't get in. So I get into this limited internship because it was only for the summer. But here I am a senior. I come back home to a three-month internship knowing I'm going to lose my job uh, come the end of the summer. So I go in and my mentality is, you know what? You learn from everything. You know, I'm sure I'm going to pick up some skills here that I'm going to use in my interview process to eventually get the job that I want. And I did that. I, I worked in the real estate um, company uh, for a while there. Um, the internship ended and I was like, oh my God, I, I, I know I'm not going to have a job. What do I do? I uh, I called my good friend, Jack Brown. He's a, a fraternity brother of mine. And he's like, you know what, Ray? I'll get you a job. It's not in your it's not in your field, but I'll get you a job. You know, no big deal. I was like, look, I've been working all my life. So whatever you give me, I'm going to make the best of it. And um, we get there. I was like, damn, I don't have a suit. You know, I don't have a tie. 
you know, and uh, you probably heard this in a couple of interviews, but the same green suit, the <laughs> same tie, I'm sure you heard it. I wore that suit to that interview myself, and I worked in that halfway house for 10 months, uh, Delisha, and it was like the worst experience because here I am a business major. I'm supposed to be working in Manhattan. I'm supposed to be working in a nice office, you know, but here I am as a counselor to ex-convicts, right? I'm like, man, I'm a failure, right? I'm a failure. And, you know, in the beginning, that was the feeling, right? But I was able to leverage my relationships with my undergraduate um, fraternity, and I was able to get a job. At least food was being put on the table, so I was happy about that. In that process, you know, I'm meeting with inmates, I'm counseling them about life, but in my mind, I'm like, wow, you know, I could have been one of these people. You know, extending my help and knowing that things could be worse is actually a positive because for me, it kept me on my game. It kept me on my goal to be better. So I was not going to be defeated. And um, just conversations with uh, friends who are being successful in their respective fields, I just kept knocking on that door. And in that, within that nine month period, the, the, the real estate company that had me as an intern called me for a property manager job in Brooklyn. So I was able to do that. And I said, you know what? This is just a journey to get me to what I really want, right? Which is State Farm. I really want to work for State Farm. So I remember going to Toronto with a bunch of fraternity brothers to an event called Carabana. It's like this big thing in Toronto. And I'm hanging out with one of my frat brothers. And he's like, I said, you know, what are, what are you doing today? He goes, what are you doing these days? He goes, I'm a corporate attorney for Liberty Mutual Insurance. You know, I handle a lot of their major cases, major accident cases as attorney of counsel. I said, look, I've been trying to get into the State Farm thing forever. Um, would it be okay if I gave you my resume and maybe I can interview with Liberty Mutual? He's like, sure, send me your resume. So that Monday, I sent him my resume. And sure enough, he got me an interview. I got hired by Liberty Mutual. Um, at the time, I had already interviewed with State Farm maybe five times. You know, I was like on my last wheel with State Farm. But I'm like, you know what? I don't really care. I just want to get into the industry. I want to learn, right? So I leave the real estate company. I go to Liberty Mutual. I work there as an adjuster. And two months later, uh, somebody from State Farm calls me. He goes, hey, we're just calling. We pulled up your shield here. We noticed you've been around on the Canada pool a long time. So yeah, you know, I, I was been trying to get in, but I realized I need to just move forward with my you know, career aspirations. And she's like, let me ask you a question. Where do you live? I said, I live in the city. I live in New York City. She goes, the strangest thing, your records are upstate New York, not in our downstate office. Mm. Well, I've been interviewing for jobs in the upstate area because they thought I lived in the upstate area. Of course, I'm interviewing with people that look, don't look like me. They are probably, you know, like, I got a little Spanish accent. They and they know I'm from the city. Maybe I'm not a fit for their environment. And here this lady goes, we're gonna, we're gonna send your resume and your application information down to the city region. Well, needless to say, she does that. And the next two days I get a call that they want to interview me. I'm like, wow, I just got into Liberty Mutual. <laughs> Things are good. I'm three months into Liberty Mutual. I get promoted once. Like, wow, this guy's really. He's ahead of things. Let's promote him. I get like a raise and all that good stuff. Like things are going really well. Why would I leave? Right. Again, I had to go back to why did I want to join State Farm 
uh, in the first place. And then I had to evaluate, they had my application in the wrong region. Maybe I should have updated them with my information. Long story short, I go to the State Farm, I get the job, okay? I finally go to an interview where half the room looks like me and they understand me and I'm able to connect with them in the interview. That was the, probably one of the happiest days of my life because I never looked back. And uh, I started in claims and State Farm had this program for um, you know urban markets where if you open an agency, a State Farm agency from scratch, you can build it and they will finance you and help you build it until you become independent. And um, I worked in claims for five years and the opportunity to open an agency in my old neighborhood came up. And I literally fell off the chair when I heard it in a meeting. And I was the first uh, State Farm office uh, in Washington Heights. I opened September of 2001, which is 10 days before 9-11. And uh, so flashing to today, I started. we started with zero customers. Now we have over 5,000 families that we serve in, in Washington Heights. But it's all connected to how I grew up all the way up until now because just growing up, and, and visiting Dominican Republic, but also watching my mother sponsor all her siblings into this country. I was able to grow up and find out what was important to my customer base. And uh, here I am today. So I'm putting it all together for you because I know we talked about Binghamton University, but I, I wanted to tell you that I felt like Binghamton University provided me a platform to of, of where my professional growth took place, my career growth took place to where I am today in terms of skill sets and, you know, my everyday life as a human being, you know. Um, So proud to say that uh, a lot of highlights in my career. Uh, We're in the top, I've been in the top 5% of their agency group uh, for at least 15 years now or more. Um, I got a chance to recruit people into the business, develop people to best, you know, to open their own business and also uh, manage it as well. Yeah. So, but there's one thing that I, that I want to point out about that, that journey is implicit bias is real in the hiring process. Mm-hmm. Um, when people naturally gravitate to those that they have common ground with or that look like them, et cetera. And it's something that the majority really has to work very hard to overcome, um, especially in areas where they don't see a lot of people that that don't look like them. But what's interesting about this is the one thing, maybe not the one thing, but I think it was a huge factor uh, in you not being able to break into State Farm Upstate is the thing that allowed you to be very successful in building out your office downstate, right? And, And I think we spend a lot of time talking about, and as we should, but talking about the barriers to entry for us as black and brown folks and how it inhibits and limits us in one way, but there are ways in which uh, it's an asset when used appropriately. And, and that's why I think it's so important to really explore what your giftings are and what your goals are and how your unique characteristics can help to further those. And and so and in, in, on this show, we're in the business of acknowledging the hurdles that we are, but we don't wallow there right? The the hurdles that we have to face, we're not waddling there. There are things that absolutely make the journey more difficult for for us. And we need allies on the other side of the fence as well to to help. However, the reality of it is the things that are inhibiting us, they're here. But how do we overcome them and how do we achieve in spite of? And I think your story is a good example of that. But I do want to talk about what it means to have 
an insurance office, right? Because everybody might not might not know. All we know are state, you know, farm commercials and you know all that all that stuff and getting car insurance and whatever that means. Um, but what does it mean to have an office? And what does that process look like from soup to nuts to set that up? You you mentioned um, that there was a program to to help finance that and and get it going at the state farm. But what did that what did that process look like for you? Sure, for me. Um it was very, very personal. You know, I'm going to be a small business owner in my old community. Um, so for me, it started there more than anything else. Um, flipping to today, I, I still tell my employees, if, if we took that sign down and we started selling mop and sh- mops and shovels, will people still buy from us? And I go back to uh, something I learned from um, a motivational speaker called Simmons, Simon Sinek, where it starts with your why, how the most inspired leaders, they work from the inside out. Um, not from the outside in, like he focuses on not the how and the what, but first the why. Um, you know, um, Martin Luther King, as an example, he led the civil rights movement, but he wasn't the only one, right? There were so many others. But why does he stick out, right? Because his why was so in your face, right? And he was not afraid of, of challenging the status quo, right? That comes from an innate passion for what you're doing. and. What I tell my my um, what I tell folks about what I do for a living is I protect people from risks that they don't even know exist. And so I'm in a market where it's underserved. Information is very limited. And so I have an opportunity to offer customers with information on how to best protect their families. That's where we start in my office, right? So what I like about State Farm is there are 19,200 offices nationwide. But guess what? There are 19,200 reasons, different reasons as to why people decided to open their agency. So to me, that's the first part is why are you in this earth? What are you doing with your current trade to help others? Right. And so what you do is you go into a marketing partnership with State Farm and State Farm to me is just a platform for which you do what you need to do in terms of running your, your own business. You know, some people do it because they want to make a lot of money. Some people do it because they want the freedom or they want the independence. Um, some people do it because they're getting the best of both worlds, working for a big company while having a small imprint and having your own small imprint. But to me, all those things are as a result of your why. What is your why? Like, why are you doing this? You know, that's the first part. Um, that's the fuzziest part. I think that's the part that people really need to look in the mirror and ask themselves. So if you're an attorney, if you're an insurance agent, or if you're a lawyer, or, or if you're, you know, whatever occupation you have, ask yourself, why are you doing that? And why do you exist? Because, you know, Apple's a computer company, Dell is a computer company, but why do people buy more Apple than they do Dell, right? When you see their commercials, Apple's not advertising the fact that they're a computer company. What are they advertising? They're advertising that the cool life, the, the relaxed, you know, colorful, their commercials are very colorful. They're selling an experience. Dell has the same type of technology. Why wouldn't we buy them? They don't promote themselves to be that way. I think Apple promotes their why better than Dell. That's my personal experience. So in terms of opening an insurance agency, what I personally for me, it's, it's like um, what I call community service for a profit. That's what I do. If I'm sitting in front of a customer, it's like I'm sitting in front of a, a relative. And, um, and, and 
And what we usually say in my office is, how do we save our customers from themselves? How do we educate them? They come in asking for auto insurance, right? They don't speak the language. Now we break down how insurance works in their language. Um, It's not just the language, it's the culture too, what's important to them. I'm in a predominantly Dominican neighborhood. So what's important to people from Dominican Republic and what's important to people in Colombia, they may be varying differences. A lot of similarities, but varying and different. Varying differences. We look for cultural relevance and connection, right? So I use the State Farm platform to educate my customers on the risk that could potentially exist. Like, for example, with life insurance, you know, death is inevitable. What are we doing to plan so when we're not here to pass on a legacy to our family? That's a big selling point for us, but is it a big selling point for the customer, right? We know our customers have dreams. You know, they want to buy their their first home or they want to start their own business or they want to go back to their homeland and retire and live happily ever after. Whatever their dreams are, our job is to take our products and make it a match for what they want. So I can talk about insurance all day long, but if it doesn't touch them in the way that they want it, it's not touching them in the way that benefits them, what are we really doing? So I think that's what makes our office so different. Uh, Delisha, is that we took, try to touch the hearts of the customer and find out what they truly want and what are their dreams. If we can take our products and match it to their dreams, th- then it works. So I think State Farm, does just they just do an excellent job of presenting themselves as a good neighbor company. We're in your community. We're here for you. We're not pushing insurance. You don't see State Farm commercials where they're pushing insurance on you, but they're talking about experiences and real life people that you can talk to about coverage, as an example. We take that in our office and we just localize it to our local neighborhood um, and, and, and our clientele. Um, clearly, you know, our, our, most of our clientele is from Dominican Republic, but not everybody, right? We have people from everywhere. And, and so we look to connect more than we do um, try to sell somebody something, if that makes sense. That, that mm-hmm. culture in the office. But the opportunity for me is, is a great opportunity for me to give back to my community, but also earn a really good income for me and my family. Uh, this, you know, this provided a lot for my family over the years. Um, and it provides financial freedom and also freedom as well, because it's owning your own business. You control your own schedule. You, you manage your office the way you want to manage it. You structure it the way you want to structure it. Um, and so, there's a lot of autonomy that goes with it, but then you have the financial support of a Fortune 500 company. So what can I say? It's like the best of both worlds. You have your own business, but you have the support of a major brand. And that's kind of how I describe State Farm. We have over 90 products that we offer from commercial to home to life, uh, to liability, uh, small business insurance, and things of that nature. Absolutely. So you, your office is ranked where at this point? I just want to reiterate that where they're ranked nationally for State Farm. We're in the top 5%. So for example, uh, for homeowners insurance, we're ranked number 17 in the country. Uh, For health insurance, we're ranked number 34, I believe. And for life insurance, we're in the top 100. So they're like, you see these things popping up online. Everybody's always like trying to make other income, like supplemental income and selling insurance is something that you see, right? People trying to build out these insurance teams and it's become in some ways, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, 
something that looks a little bit like multi-level marketing for the people who are not in it full time, but do this on the side. And it's legitimate. There are, um, you know, these policies legitimate, et cetera. Um, there are people who are doing it that, but I think there's a perception amongst the general public. Oh, you're just trying to sell me on something that I either can't afford or I don't really need right now. Right. right. Um, especially in our communities, when you're talking about life insurance, how many people do we know that have been have passed away. We're living in the middle of a global health crisis right now. And I think people are thinking about it more who have passed away and the families have to cobble together the money, right? To, to, to lay their loved one to, to rest. So you're in a community where this may not be high on the list not at all. of expenses and necessary expenses. We get auto insurance because we're required to have it by law. If you buy a house, you get home insurance because you have to have it. Life insurance is completely optional, right? Um, so I, I want to delve into this a little bit because I think it's important. So how do you overcome perception mm-hmm. as an insurance salesman and people sometimes thinking, you're just trying to get me for my money and you know getting me to pay for things that I don't need or overpay for it. How do you over, overcome that? And how do you sell in our communities, the necessity for something like life insurance? That's a great question. And I go back to uh, the why, right? The why is so important in this situation because I never want to come off as a salesman. That's not who I am. In fact, I don't consider myself to be in sales. I consider myself to be a risk manager. We manage risk. Um, what's different about State Farm, in my opinion, is that we're not knocking on down on your door to buy life insurance. However, we are going to educate you on the things that you really have to have, which is auto and home, right? Well, in those policies, there are coverage gaps. Like, for example, God forbid something happened to you in an auto accident. You have a limited amount of coverage there for your family should something happen to you. You're, gonna, you're driving. Something can happen to you. What's your family going to do? So there are government-regulated products that people have to have, but the why, back to the why, is how do we save our customers from themselves? So in a lot of, in a lot, a lot, a lot of scenarios in, in my office, we consider ourselves a, what do you call it? We do, we, uh, we promote education and selling at the same time. We call it edu selling. So we're not just going to sell you an auto insurance policy and not educate you on those mechanics. And we're not just going to educate you on the mechanics. We're going to educate you on the coverage gaps. And so in a community like we were in, like I just told you, we're in the top 100 in the country. How are you in a country, in the top 100 in the country, um, when most of your customers don't believe in life insurance? Well, it's right. the education. It starts with the inf- process of information. We already know it's an underserved community. You know, so for, for, for me uh, personally, I don't feel like life insurance is one of those things that should be um, aggressively push down someone's throat. I think it's really more about getting to know that customer, what's important to them. Um, Once we educate our customers in how the products they have to have work, those conversations about life insurance and health insurance and managing money and risk management start to come up because it's all about your portfolio. It's not about the car. When we talk to customers, we say, it's not about the car. It's about the people that are in the car. The car can be replaced. You can't be replaced. You know, um, we're all going to die. We just don't know when. What are we doing to plan for it? You know, what are we doing so we're not a burden to our family members? You know, what do you do 
you're sitting in my office right now. What if there's a fire in your apartment? You know, I always talk to customers about their dreams. And one of the things is customers always talk about, I want to buy a house. Okay. You want to buy a house. When do you want to buy a house by? Okay. I want, you want to buy a house in six years. Okay. If there's a fire in your apartment today, how far would it set you back to buy that house in six years? Oh man, it'll take me 10 years. What if I told you there was a way to avoid that? There's a way that you can insure yourself so that if there is a fire in your apartment, you can still meet your six, six year goal of owning your own house. And it only costs you $12 a month to insure the stuff in your apartment. What if I told you that? Oh, wow, that's great. How does that work? That we get into this conversation, right? And I think with those conversations, that's where the customer leads us to what they want. Um, and I always train my team. It's not about what we want. It's about what they want. So if we're sharing information and they don't want what we have or what we recommend, we still, we still did, did our job. And if you do that a few thousand times, guess what? The people that want it are going to sign up for it and you won't come off as a pushy salesman. I remember um, the Will Smith video that you talked about where Will's father knocked down the wall and had Will and his brother rebuild the wall. I don't know if you remember that one, but he's, he's, saying, um, he's saying to to his sons, don't never let anybody tell you that you can't do anything. But more importantly, what I learned out of it is you, when Will Smith says, my dad taught me that it's not about building a wall. It's not about the end. It's about how you lay a brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid. And if you do that a few thousand times, soon you have a wall. And that speaks to why did I sign up into this business? I feel like I have such a powerful influence over my community by being an insurance agent. Let me give you an example, Delisha. One of my goals by the time I retire is to leave a billion dollars worth of life insurance in Washington Heights. Why? Because I feel that if I leave that kind of money in that community, do you realize what it could do to that community? It will uplift that community. And the more I educate every single client and the more they sign up for life insurance, when I get to that goal where I have a billion dollars worth of life insurance coverage in that area, I know I would have done my job because insurance, a lot of people, you know, they always say insurance is in case something happens, right? Life insurance is not one of those things. Life insurance is because it's definitely going to happen. We just don't know when. What are we doing to plan for it? I think it really just starts with how you connect with the customer and what's important to them and then presenting them with the obstacles that can get in the way of them pursuing their dream or them providing for their family. And when you talk about life insurance, which is what you asked me, is there are different types of life insurance policies. There are some that build cash value that allow you to draw money from there and you can do the things you want to do while you're still living. So you can take $5,000 a year, put it into a life insurance policy that builds cash value that you can eventually draw upon to buy your first home or, you know, open your first business. Um, that's how I've managed to manage my offices. I've had cash value life insurance that I dip into every now and then when I need it to do things with. It allows me to bank with myself. Then there's term insurance, which gives you the maximum coverage for the least amount of money in case something happens to you while your kids are growing up. We can provide financial financial assistance to them so they don't go so they don't go backwards in life and they continue to move on through life as if you were still there. Those are kind of the conversations we have. We don't uh, we do a lot of reviews in my office 
and we do a lot of check-ins with what will happen to you. What what would happen to you? What will your family be doing now if you weren't here today? You know, we have those tough conversations. We always tell customers, let's have that conversation once. You know, we don't have to have it every day. Let's just have it once. And I can explain to you how it works. And then you can make your decision from there. And that's how, that's how we work. We work based on relationships. We don't work on trying to sell you something. Um, just edge selling. That's what we do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you broke a lot of that down because I think sometimes those who have not been educated, we look at life insurance as the way to cover a funeral, right? Not realizing that is a mechanism for wealth creation. And, and generational wealth. And we often talk about, you know, as a community, not all, but a lot of us, I, I don't have anything to leave and will. I don't, I don't own property. Or if I do want to leave something to my kids, the, the one way I can do that is to buy a home. And that's great. But there are other ways to leave your family and the generations that come behind you in a better position than you were in. And, and we know that it often takes more than one generation for us to find our, our footing and create that wealth as a community. That's just, that's just economics. And it's been proven that it often takes more than one, right? You have the ones that go to college. Okay. We get a little bit better here. We have children. It takes more, but this, this piece, this financial piece can be utilized as a way to accelerate that process when done uh, properly. And I think sometimes we all, we get on Google and we press a button, click a few, you know, numbers and enter our credit card information or account information. We're like, great, I'm covered. Not even realizing that there are other forms of life insurance that can provide benefit to you that, like, as you mentioned today, while you're still alive and, and, and generate money in, in a way that's just not you paying into it, paying a premium for a payout that happens, um, when you pass on. But one thing I, I want to touch on for sure, because it was a piece of advice that, that was given to me, um, is why is it important for younger people to get more life insurance now? Because I think I, like that just goes against what we inherently believe. It's like, I'm younger. I don't, I don't have kids yet or, you know, so I, I don't need all that insurance immediately. But what's the benefit in getting maybe a larger premium earlier before you even have the family? Yeah, I think that's a great question. First of all, the younger you are, the less expensive insuring your life is. Um, you don't have a guarantee on what your health status is going to be when you're older. Um, seen it many times with even some of my friends. They, they develop high blood pressure or they develop diabetes. And all of a sudden, now they need life insurance. Well, that's not the time to think about it. The time to think about it is early in your in your uh, in your in your 20s, really, uh, to purchase um, cash value life insurance because what you're doing is we have the, you have a gift of your youth um, when you buy life insurance. And the gift of your youth is that you have this um, time horizon where your money can build up over time with a lot greater amount than someone who's in their 30s or their 40s. So the younger you are, the younger you, you lock it in, the better you're going to be in the long term. So life insurance is really a long-term game, right? Now, we don't know in that time horizon when you're going to die. No one knows where they're going to die. That, that happens unexpectedly. That can happen unexpectedly. But because you don't have any children, you're not married, and you're in your 20s, a lot of people think that's not the perfect time. It actually is the perfect time because you're a lower risk. So your life, the insuring on your life is a lot less expensive, but the cash buildup over time is a lot greater because you have all these years to which you can build up enough cash value to even pay off the life insurance, be completely 
not have to pay any more life insurance after a certain age. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, a lot of people don't, don't um, I guess they don't have the information, right? That you can, you can have a living benefit in life insurance over cash value that you can access to do things with. So as opposed to walking to a bank and borrowing money at an 11% interest, you can actually go into your own life policy, borrow against it and pay yourself back. You become your own bank. And so I think our, you know, when I talk about black and brown people is we're in the survival instinct. Like we're just trying to survive, right? We're not even thinking about the next generation, right? But people who are not black and brown, if you're uh, Caucasian, you already have a head start because you're father had a life policy or your grandfather had a million dollar life policy. So financially, you already have a head start over your your other um, friends who are of color. We don't have that. And I think part of it is like, like I was telling you earlier is we're here to protect people from risks they don't even know exist. And I think in, in my world, the gateway is auto insurance because they're coming in for that. So I'm like, that's great. I get to edgy, edgy sell them on why they need to have cash value life insurance. The other thing is, the other obstacle we run to is that it's expensive, which is completely untrue. You can buy a life insurance policy for $30 a month or $1,000 a month. It's all based on how much you can afford and what type of policy and what type of benefit you can, you can get out of that. Um, but back to your point, the earlier you lock in the rate, the better. And it's all about protecting your risk. It's all about I always tell my customers, you know, we're not asking you for extra money. We're just asking you to let us manage a part of your money that you already have. And we're putting it in a different pocket called life insurance. That's all it is. It's all risk management. No one's asking you for extra. And especially for my young people, they come in. I'm like, all right, let's let's be real here. How much did you spend money on at the club last weekend? They're like, oh, I spent I spent two hundred dollars. Okay. Why don't we take $50 of that $150 and put it towards something that can earn you 4% interest? And guess what? If something happens to you, we will check to your mother for $50,000. So that's how we get and connect with the young, with some of the young people is tell me what you're already spending and where we, can we take it out of so that you can protect this aspect of, of, of yourself and, and your life. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but being young is such an advantage when it comes to life insurance because you get to lock in a lot less expensive rate. But number two, you have this opportunity to build cash value that a lot of older people just don't have, which is why they buy the burial insurance. You know, the burial insurance is because, hey, I didn't have, no one ever gave me information on having X amount of coverage. Now I had to buy this burial life insurance. For me, I have regrets that my parents didn't have somebody like me to say, buy yourself a million dollar policy. My parents are in their seventies now. Like my dad is in the seventies. My mom is in her late sixties. Do you know how much it would cost for me to get a million dollars on my mom or my dad? It would cost me thousands now, but I can't now. It's too expensive. Had someone talked to them when, before they had me, um, we would be, my brother and I would be in a completely different situation. So um, that's the battle we fight in my agency every day. But you know, I'm grateful for the the auto insurance and the home insurance part because that's where we that's where we talk about those coverage gaps and we talk about what's important to them and we make a match for um, building wealth to your point and passing wealth to the generations that follow. Um, I'm I'm hoping I reach that billion dollar in life insurance part before I re- 
get out of this industry and retire. Because to me, I think that is the game changer in our community is passing on wealth for, you know, a monthly payment. Um, it's just, it's an incredible, incredible, incredible product. And now, uh, you know, I hope more and more people are starting to realize that even with this pandemic, this is, this is the time, like this is the, the worst period in, in, in one of the worst periods in history that you have to look at your life insurance and say, do I have enough? So. Yeah. And I mean, it's we don't have the conversations because it's not difficult to have. <laughs> I mean, it's not easy to have. It's very difficult. And nobody wants to think about bad things happening. Right. And and I think we're just now in a time where you can't avoid it. There's just so much bad happening. And and COVID is touching people that we know personally. There's not a person that I've talked to who doesn't have a story that has impacted them. Right. Someone that they know, a friend of a friend one degree of separation from this or no degree of separation from this terrible, vicious illness that's just taking people out. So I think the conversation is becoming more and more uh, relevant and, and prevalent as it should. And and that may be a positive that, that comes out of this. But one other thing that I want to mention that I think is important because I, I have seen this happen too, where we lose someone and everybody's like, give me the number to their employer because I know they had something at work, right? So we all sign up Mm-hmm. We do all of our onboarding paperwork at a new job and, you know, you have to identify beneficiaries and, you know, you get these um, these fringe benefits from your job. But a lot of us don't read closely. And oftentimes you, you might have an insurance policy through your employer, but that payout may be if you die on your job or there's an a- accidental death and dismemberment. It's not just if something happens outside of work that your family's going to be taken care of. So I just wanted to raise that too, because people may hear this and say, oh, I've got all that through work, but they haven't taken the, the time to really look through that closely to see, okay, what are the param- parameters around this, if any? Now, some of us do have life insurance from work that that is get paid out no matter what happens to you, but there is also an opportunity to supplement. And oftentimes we need to, because the cap on what you get from work may not be um, as high of a benefit as we should have or as we should need. So I think that's important to highlight too. Even if you get some benefits through work, talk to somebody to make sure if the coverage is enough and sufficient for what you might want or need for your family. Amen. There are a lot of examples of, of people that say I have it through work. 99% of the people that say they have it through work, they don't know how much they have. They don't know what kind of policy it is. They don't know how long the policy lasts. A lot of those policies cancel once you retire. So when you need it the most, it doesn't exist, or it's it substantially decreases. Like for example, we had a, I had a friend whose um, uncle-in-law um, retired from I want to say New Jersey Power and Utility Company or whatever, and he had a sixty thousand dollar death benefit while he was working for them, and he passed away six months later. And they were looking through the paperwork, and there's actually a stipulation there that says. It's only covered to $60,000 while he's employed post-retirement. Only It's only $2,000 in benefit. Mm. So here we are, the family's relying on the $60,000, right? And now they're only getting $2,000. Now they've got to come up, you know, they have to come up with another $16,000 in burial benefits just to cover the burial part. And so to me, that's a sad, that's a sad story to tell because if you don't need the, you don't read the fine print, like you said, you'd be terrible terribly wrong about what it is that you actually have at work. Um, I have yet to come across a, a policy that says you already have it. You don't need it from me. I have yet to run into a scenario where you have enough at work. Right. 
You know, that's the reality. I don't think we want to face it, but I think what we what we uh, try to offer in, in in our office is try to make a connection to what's important to the customer. Like, for example, if it's a husband and wife, we definitely want to talk to the wife. In my community, the wife makes a lot of financial decisions. And the question is usually, if something happened to him, what will happen to the mortgage payment? And that usually gets, gets them talking about it. Or if you want to open your own business, what are you doing to put money away for your own business? A lot of people are not doing that. They're not disciplined about it. If you use life insurance for that, in addition to the best benefit to your family. And I think information is power. But if you're not doing it off of something that you're already serving the customer with, it becomes difficult. Like, I could never see myself as a life insurance person. Never. You know, because I know the experience. It's more about risk management to me and protecting people against risks they don't even know exist. Absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit back to your personal story, we, we turned this into like a workshop, but I think it's important to our, our communities to have this information, especially while they're thinking about it mm-hmm. more so now, given where we are uh, in the state of the world. But um, shifting back to your personal story, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Describe a time where I have to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Mm. I would, I, you know, I think, I guess most people interpret this differently, but I remember uh, giving up my first business to go work at corporate. And what they sold me on was, we want more people that look like you opening state farm agencies. And you've been a successful agent all these years. I think I was an agent for six years, I, I want to say. We want you to give this up. So that you, we can give this to somebody else so that you can go recruit these other agents to open agencies in these areas. And then we want you to teach them what you've learned to them so they can be successful. And that took a lot of, a lot out of me because I tend to see the end with things, but not necessarily the details that go up to that. And so sometimes it makes for good decisions, (laughs) but sometimes it makes for terrible decisions. And I remember saying, I want to be a part of a legacy. I want to have a legacy. I, I want to, Martin Luther King to me was a pioneer and he changed trajectories in many ways. And I wanted to be sort of that person in, in my career. And here I am given the opportunity to do that, but I got to give up something that's very dear to me. I built the business from nothing. And I built it up over six years. I had, I was doing great. I was making great money. I had great employees. We were jamming, you know, but here I am jamming, having a good time, successful, making great money. Now I got to give my own agency up so that other people can open. So I had to be unselfish in a way. And, and so that other people could have opportunity. And that was tough. You know, I remember recruiting my, my days as a recruiter were from 1 p.m. to like 10, 11 o'clock at night because anybody who was successful was at the networking parties, <laughs> right? Right. So I knew I had to recruit people from success, not unemployed or from failure. If I wanted really great and a really great and successful legacy, I knew I had to work my relationships to make sure that we're attracting the right talent. And I remember saying, you know, after like three, four months. And I'm saying, what the heck did I, what, what did I just do? I just got my own business. Here I am in midtown Manhattan, you know, just crazy, just trying to convince people to do this. But me, meanwhile, I left an established business. Um, that required a lot of 
internal fortitude and 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 drive to to see the end and say if this happens I'm going to say I had a hand in that legacy. And so I just I did the brick by brick thing, the whole Will Smith thing, you know, just I know I'm honing skills. I know I'm learning something. I have to keep myself saying I'm going to learn something new by all of this. And I was able to learn the recruiting funnel, how you attract people, how to down to a system. I meet you. I get your business card. I, I write a little note about you. I give it to my secretary. She sets up a one-on-one lunch. I go to a one-on-one lunch to, with you. Then I invite you to the open house. Then I take you to a few other agents' offices so you see how they run their own business. And then you kind of start the process from there. Um, that requires a lot of extraordinary, extra energy, thinking outside the box because I was the only one in the country doing this. I was the only, it was a corporate project. So that was the other thing too, is it was a, uh, I was like a, kin- a guinea pig to see, hey, how is this going to work? Can we multiply that through corporate? So I, I was more motivated by if this works, not only am I going to be recognized at the corporate level, but I would have impacted more customers, more community, more of the community than if I just did it by myself. You know, so that's the one thing I learned is whatever I was doing when I was working for corporate, it impacted so many other people because now we have there are over eight, eight or nine agencies right now that opened because of that work that I did. And mm. each agency is serving about three, four thousand families. So for me to know that that's happening is 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 awesome. One of my recruits, who happens to be a, a fraternity brother from Binghamton, he was the first African American State Farm agent to be number one in the country. Two wow. Years ago two years ago and he made history and I'm saying to myself, I was a part of that, you know? And now that I have my own agency again, I'm able to implement those things that I learned on the leadership side to my people, to my current uh, employees. So that required a lot of extraordinary effort and, you know, lots of sleepless nights and how I was going to do that and doing it on my own. Absolutely. So now, you know, you, you helped, other people create legacy in that way and build successful businesses, came back to having your own office, building that out. How many employees do you have at this point? Right now I have eight employees. Soon I'll have 10, but I I, I usually circle between 10 and 12 employees. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on average, 10 employees serving at this point, 4,000 families on average? A little bit over 5,000 families. A little, little, little bit over 5,000 and counting. And counting. Um, we, we are... In the midst of a, of a health crisis, as we mentioned, has that affected your business at all? Yes, it has. And um, we, we shifted. We, sh- we, we've made some mind shifts in my office because we're working virtually now. A lot of my t- employees are from the community. The kids still live in the community. They're young. They're in their 20s and early 30s. So a lot of it came from our why, back to the why, right? Why did we decide to do this? We're here to serve the community. We're using State Farm as a platform to serve our community. So the transition has been tough, but really it's just, they're buying into, you guys have a great opportunity to protect your job because we're in a, um, we're selling auto insurance and home insurance. People still have to have that. They still have to pay for that, right? So our job shifted from more sales to more retention, where we're calling our customers just to check on them. What can we do to help your help you with your, your bill? Right now, no one's paying their bill, which is fine. We're still offering coverage during the time that they're not paying their bill. We're, we're also uh, giving our customers back, you know, over $2 billion 
um, throughout the country. So we, we're giving credits and starting in June, we'll start giving some of our customers credits for, for doing the coronavirus. So the, the adaptation to, to retention, that, that's tough because, you know, we're used to being in, a, in an open space. Everybody's at work physically. We're interacting with each other. We're feeding off of each other's energy. And now we're forced to project that out through a conference call or a video conference call. Um, our business has been um, affected from a sales perspective. Um, and I want to say our service levels have actually gone up more than they have declined. We're actually giving the customers a little bit more attention than because now we have the time. We're not in acquisition mode. We're more in retention mode. Um, what it would look like after this, I cannot tell you, but what, what would not change is the reason why I got into the business and what we're about in that community. And no matter what happens to us, I'm sure we're going to be fine. Um, I think um, we're still, you know, we're still in the top five in New York City in terms of sales anyway. So I'm not really worried about that. We're worried more about touching our customers. So now we're having those life insurance conversations more than ever. We're having those health insurance conversations more than ever because the situation is just calling for it. Um, so the beauty of, of, of the business is that you can shift to different um, to different areas. You can shift to retention, you can shift to acquisition, and you can rebalance it as long as you have the right people. Um, I think when you hire people that believe what you believe, they'll give you their blood, sweat, and tears. But if they just want to work for you because they want a job, they're just going to work for you for your money. And I think I'm fortunate that people are working for me, most people, because they believe what I believe. And so it's, it's, it's wide open on what we're learning. We're learning more about tracking reports and Salesforce and phone reports and, you know, Big Brother's Watching kind of removing that Big Brother's Watching part and more of this is more how you tell me your story about what you're doing throughout the day. So holding a, employees accountable, I realized that um, I'm not th- I wasn't that good <laughs> until we went into this virtual world. And now we have systems that allow me to oversee people and reports that we had before. I just never embraced them as much as I do now. Um, so I think our business is forever changed. I think we're going to be fine in terms of where, when we go back and reopen the office. Um, but, but to tell you the truth, the transition was tough. Um, mm-hmm. How you turn a negative into a positive, I think we talked about this earlier, is super important as a business owner because your employees are looking to you to say, okay, how is this person going to make sure I'm safe, make sure I'm comfortable, make sure I'm confident? And like one of the things we did was we had a promotion on how many customer touches you did. So if you did 200 touches, you're going to get a check for 500 hours because you touched mm-hmm. customer. That has nothing to do with sales. It's just, you know, somebody else asked me that, why are you paying them for something you're already paying them a salary to do? I said, because this is the coronavirus. My job is to create opportunity, but also to impact the customer. I can't assume that prior to coronavirus, they were doing the job I was painting for. But guess what? Their world just changed. Now, while they're working from home, their the little babies tugging on their shirt. You got uh, other family members walking around the house. Their whole world is torn apart. So as their leader, I have to create opportunities for my employees because how else are they going to be inspired, right? And I think that's so important is how we inspire our people and how do we create financial opportunity for them in the situation that we're in is 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 key to adapting and staying in front in the in the front as one of the you know above average performing agencies in the country. It's 
you have to adapt to the situation and reward for activities. And I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think we are seeing in the news that these like global organizations, how they value their people or don't mm-hmm. and, and how they've responded to um, what's going on in the world. And for many people who listen to our show are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs or business owners. And you've brought up um, something that is key. And I think if you if you want the people, either your your employees or your customers to go above and beyond, you've got to go above and beyond for them. People need to be inspired and sent and incentivized to do that. Yeah. It, a lot of people say, um, take care of your customers. And I said, wrong. You take care of your employees. If you take care of your employees, they'll take care of all your customers. And mm-hmm. I, as business owners, we lose that. We're thinking, I'm paying you a salary. Well, you got to do your job. That passes on to the customer. So if you're not focused on leading your, your employees, you're going to be in trouble. Your customers are not going to be happy. If your employees are happy, your customers are going to be happy, you know, automatically. And I think, you know, that's the part that a lot of business owners don't understand is, you know, a lot of us, we spend money thinking, okay, if I pay you this, then I should be getting back that. You don't realize you might be paying these people money, but if you're not earning yourself the right to be their leader, you got to get their respect first and you got to lead from the front. You cannot lead from the back and say, here's the money, go do that. No, talk to me about your day. How do we create a perfect day for you? How do I reward you for a perfect day? Uh, We have this thing in my office. It's a daily tracker. We track the amount of daily calls that are being handled, the amount of presentations that we're doing, presentations being educational presentations to customers, uh, how many minutes you're on the phone with the customer, how many sales you did. And and the expectations that you do two out of those four things. And if you're not doing two out of those four things, then I'm paying you full time for a part-time job, you know, and that brick by brick. And I, I, you know, I tell them that daily tracker is how you build that wall that Will Will Smith talks about. If you want to build a career, you got to start building it brick by brick. And how you get closer to your career is by having thousands of perfect days. You know, I was telling someone um, last week, because if they hit all four, I buy them lunch, Grubhub lunch. (laughs) And it's the second time hitting it. I said, look, if you do that every day, before you look up, you'll be sitting in your own office. I says, and that's what I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you that everything you do for me, you're really doing for yourself and you're really doing it to build your career. So that inspiration. You have to inspire your your employees. If you don't inspire your employees and create opportunities beyond your walls, you're going to have people that are just going to work for your money and not for why you got into business in the first place. That's a message. And I think it's a good place to wrap this conversation up. But before we let you get out of here, for those uh, who could be potential customers of yours, where can they find you? They can email me at um, Ray, R-E-Y, at raypolanco.com, R-E-Y-P-O-L-A-N-C-O.com, or my website, raypolanco.com. You can call our our phones if you're in New Jersey, 973-657-2020, or in New York, 212-740-9300. And let me just say this as somebody, I'm going to do my own commercial. As someone who loves to just go on the internet, enter some information and get things done, um, I don't I don't really like making phone calls and all this kinds of stuff. But recently um, I was in the market for homeowner insurance and, and went against 
my normal instinct and made the call to an agent who then started not only finding better deals for me as it relates to homeowners, a homeowner's policy, but also bundling my auto with that and looking at other things that were of benefit. And it was a considerable cost savings just by making the call and having that conversation um, with an agent. So, So for those of us who think we have it figured out, and we have everything we need from life to home to auto, sometimes it's beneficial to talk to somebody and make sure you're getting um, not only what you need, but at the rate or the premium uh, that it, that is ideal for you. So make the call. Even if you have what you need, uh, it doesn't hurt to have a conversation, especially as these things are becoming more and more top of mind for us, uh, given, given where we are in the world. So that's my little testimonial about why and how uh, why you should call an agent and, and how it can be be helpful as well. So make sure you check out Ray Polanco if you are a New York or New Jersey resident, correct? They can reach out to your office. Um, and if you are have been educated by what you heard here today, tell somebody about it. Like, share, and, and subscribe uh, to the podcast for sure. Ray, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was quite informative. We went in, in a direction that I didn't even expect to go in. Um, but it was very educational, I think, for our listeners and something that we we need to be talking about. So we appreciate you coming on the show for sure and sharing your story and your knowledge, um, not only from a business perspective and what it means to build something from the ground up, but also from a wealth generation perspective and how that can impact our community for the better. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So one more thing to our listeners, as you know, we end every episode the same. Once you go ahead and like, share, and subscribe, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.